Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Malcolm Gunning, who is the principal of Gunning Real Estate and the president of the Real Estate Institute of Australia. We have a chat to Malcolm about all the political hot potatoes going around in the property industry at the moment, negative gearing, his idea about having a professional property minister. We talk about the Chinese market and its influence on Australian property prices. We talk about the future of the East Coast property market and opportunities for investors and of course the policies around housing affordability. It's a fantastic and illuminating interview and I'm sure that you'll enjoy it. Here's Malcolm. Malcolm Gunning, thanks for joining us on Geared for Growth. It's a pleasure, Mike. Glad to be with you. Awesome. Been looking forward to this interview for a while. We're going to t- touch on some pretty, uh, some pretty hot potato topics today. But can you start us off with just who you are, Malcolm, and what you specialise in? Uh, look, I'm a commercial real estate agent, but I'm also a property valuer. Uh, we do a little bit of business brokerage and that type of thing. But we run a business at Surrey Hills, a commercial business at Surrey Hills and Hurstville. Two very different markets. Surrey Hills is one of those aspirational inner city suburbs, a bit like Richmond in Melbourne. And uh, Hurstville is um, really a migrant area. It's um, the southern part of Sydney, very strong uh, mainland Chinese, which we've been in that, in that part of the world for nearly 40 years. So um, we straddle both the suburban, like the, 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 the suburban city, in Hurstville and then the inner city, which you, you know, the, which you write up about all these, um, it's where everyone wants to live in some, somewhere around Surrey Hills. It's a, it's the Soho of yeah. Sydney. It's, uh, you know, of, uh, it's a Manhattan style of life. So we've got fascinating, uh, type of property we work with and interesting people. And uh, to give us a bit of a background into the young Malcolm, what posters were on the bedroom wall growing up? You know, you you only you only can take out what you put in. Okay, look, I wasn't bad at sport going through um, school, and so I said I paid late in the lower grades in the Penrith Panthers. And when you you realise with sport, you can't outperform unless you've done a whole lot of training. And with with business, unless you do the groundwork, unless you prepare yourself. For success, you won't be successful. Success doesn't come by accident. It comes from bloody hard work, preparation and organisation. And you, um, I think when you go to business, you've got to go to business, like you're um, going to any sort of sporting match. And that's something you've got to prepare, you've got to be on time, you've got to be reliable, and you've got to, you've, you've got to be able to, and you've got to be fit, fit for business. So they're the sorts of things that, uh, that, I always aspired to. I used to put posters on my kids' um, uh, windows of their, on the mirrors of their bathroom, and say, "You, you know, you are the reason for my success." Oh, wow, that's fantastic! Okay. I, I think you're right. There's a lot of parallels between sport and and business in the discipline it's required to get to the to the highest level. And yeah, you get in, uh, you get out what you put in, of course. You do, Mike. Look, I live in Rushcutters Bay in Sydney, a lovely suburb. I was one of the coffee shop I um, I go and have, uh, have have a beverage every morning after I train at the gym. I used to be there at about sort of six thirty, and I'd see the then head of the Commonwealth Bank coming through, picking up his takeaway coffee at six thirty, dressed for business on his way. So any of these, I learned at a very early age. If you're going, if you're being paid a lot of money. You carry a lot of stress and you work many, many hours. So you're not working 40 hours a week, more likely working 60 to 70 hours yeah, a week. Yeah, but uh, doesn't always get noticed, I guess. It's just more the uh, the vitriol no. of the executive salaries and that stuff. What about um, property, Malcolm? How, what, how did you first get started in property? Um, I was influenced by a man called John Taylor, who the, who's he's now dead. He was a friend of my father's out of Penrith. And his son actually runs A.H. Taylor at, um, out of Penn, a very long, a very well-established, successful real estate business. And I saw this man and the way he was happy in his job and that he's, 
and, and I used to talk to him about um, what my, why, why he's so successful. And he, I saw strong parallels between farming and real estate. One in real estate, you've got to have good communication skills. One thing that farmers have are very good communication skills because they learn of each other. They trade. They they they're not. They don't hold secrets. They give each other advice. They share equipment and, and uh, generally help each other out. And real estate's one of those industries where I could see a parallel with it. I could see that if I had good communication skills, if I really worked hard and um, provided good service, good advice, I think I could be successful. And uh, I told my father, um, you know, I broke his heart. I said, listen, I'm going to leave you, Dad, in a few months' time and go into real estate. And he said, but you're going to start from the bottom up. And I ended up selling little residential real estate, uh, little little blocks of land and that sort of thing at Parramatta back in the um, really right. mid-70s. You know, six days a week going at it was hard work. I got married. And I really worked from the bottom, <clears throat> the bottom, um, bottom up, and that. And I, but I enjoyed it. It wasn't hard, and I went to work. So you, you mentioned farming. That's obviously your background, where your family was established. That was in um, the the dairy business. I, I understand. Can you tell us about those Correct. days? Dairy, dairy farming. Ah, uh, dairy business. It's the hardest rural job um, in the world, and the cows um, are really creatures of habit. They're waiting at the milking shed at half past four every morning and probably 3.30 every afternoon. So what it is, it's just consistency. It gives you a good steady income. But um, you've got we – used, we used to milk 500 cows. We used to have um, – we have about 11 or 1,200 head of cattle. So it was – and we used to have a number of employees too. But you learned then about consistency that what you had to do is you had to get up every day, you had to go out and be consistent. You didn't have to bust your boiler. My, I remember one of the, our old farmhands saying, this is not a sprint, Malcolm. This is a marathon. If you're going to be in the farming business, you do you work consistently well and finish your jobs. Make sure you don't do a half job where you have to come back and um, redo it again. So that held me in good stead. Real estate is just being doing consistently giving good advice, providing good service, and you get repeat business. So in our business today, about seventy percent of our um, business comes from uh, repeat business. And that's that's a that's a huge percentage, right? I'm guessing that that's not typical. You're going to get a lot uh, higher percentage in generally with people sort of off the street or people that you've had no relationship with. Do you think I've sort of noticed that there is a something in common with people with a country upbringing is they tend to be very genuine, you know, there's no sort of manicured uh, version of them. You you get what you you get what you I, I guess the the authentic person and there's an extra focus on service. Do you think that that's something that that people from the country upbringing have in common? Um a lot of country people don't have egos because if you, if any of um, your listeners out there, you'll, you'll, I'm talking about not getting in the, the fancy rural fringe areas of Sydney, Melbourne, or even Adelaide. When you get out in the broader acres, um, they don't show off. Okay, if they have a good season, that pays down their overdraft. You know, they've, they've, what they do is they just live a conservative life, and they're honest. Because they are in the same location or same farm for a long time, you, if you start to bullshit or tell lies or those sorts of things, you're found out very quickly. You've got to live in that society. So, you know, you get that because everyone knows, you know, in life it's not too hard for – if you're not transparent, you can be found out. So country people – don't come in with any – they're not aspirational as such. They're not coming in with, um, with any baggage. So they normally tend to be quite open people. And that's one of the reasons in real estate, when you go in and say, well, this is who I am and I'm going to provide you the best service I can and I haven't got an ulterior of um, – I'm not running around with a, someone taking a photograph of me in front of a – with my Porsche parked <laughs> in the side of the, 
a sold sticker and these sorts of things. Nothing matter with driving Porsches or fast cars. But ego should not be should not over overtake good business acumen. I think that's uh, I think that's a really important fundamental, and it would be a little bit more uh, refreshing to see less of those photos in front of the supercars. And you know, I'm a car fan myself. I'm interested um, with the fact you mentioned sort of Surrey Hills has got you know a bit of international appeal, and you work a lot with with overseas clients, particularly uh, those from China. Can, can you give us a bit of an insight into what these investors are looking for, and and what that sort of landscape looks like now with the changes to to, to the legislation for foreign ownership? Well, there's a few questions there, Mike. But look, dealing with the Chinese, these are really hard-working um, individuals. And a lot of your listeners, I I think we Australians um, really had some xenophobia when uh, with a lot of these sales, off-the-plan sales and that. So then we got upset and we were blaming the Chinese for driving up property prices and that sort of thing, which is not the case. It's been shown now with the, the stats that have come out. It was about 7 or 8% of the off-the-plan sales. The big percentage was um, the local investors. We're looking for a scapegoat um, though, right? But we were, okay. But what the Chinese families do, uh, do and they're not much different. I mean, not, we're not talking about the big end of town. We're not talking the fly-in, fly-out. It's the people who are looking to come and live in Australia. It's no different to the Greeks, the Italians, the Yugoslavs, the Croatians who came to Australia after the Second World War. What the Chinese do is pool their money. Um, and they, with the way they live their life, they'll bring mum and dad out. Mum and dad look after the kids. And a husband and wife work their asses out seven days a week because they can own real estate here. They get over here and they've got the ability to actually own freehold real estate. And they're so grateful um, that they work hard. And they've, they've had to scrap for um, any success in China. So they're hard negotiators, something that we Australians don't like, that they'll, you know, they're not frightened to lowball you with an offer and negotiate. But the single biggest uh, quality they have when they do a deal, they go ahead. So don't all of a sudden um, do a back, back flip and nuts. In most cases, you agree, they pay a deposit, they go ahead. And they'll settle a property. We've, we know with Chinese, if even things get tough, they will do their absolute best to make sure that, that sale is settled. Also, too, they don't want to break the rules. They're not out here to scam anybody. They're not out here. They come out here for all the same reasons we love this country. They want to come out here. It's a place where they can educate their children. It's it's safe. It's a stable government. And if you work hard, you'll be successful. We've we're um, so we've got a bit of a hard edge, and we get we get accused a little bit. We have Cantonese and Mandarin speakers that work for us. But we have a bit of a hard edge. If people want to try it on with us, we're pretty pretty mm. cut and dry. Um, and that's how we treat the Chinese. We will say to them, look, um, that's a low offer. That's an idiot. You're, you're playing games with me. Go back you go back and think about it. That's a game. To, if I make that offer to the owner, he'll tell yeah. you to go away. So um, so we developed our business out there. And we now get a lot of ref- a lot of repeat business from the Chinese. They come to us because they know they get good, reliable advice. Within the Chinese community, they tend to stitch each other up, uh, each other up a little bit. So the Chinese trust Australians because in most cases we're honest. So, but in business to business, there's no ethics. The Chinese, in business to business, don't have the same sort of ethics. Um, and that's a word you don't hear mm. much these days. That, so that's interesting. I, I read a, a book many years ago uh, talking about um, called the Asian Mind Game, talking about some of the the business to bi- business tactics. And yeah, it's very shrewd and quite ruthless. Mm. Yeah, it's very shrewd and quite ruthless. Well, the the book I read is um, right. Morning Face Black Heart. The clues okay. in the title. And with it, yeah. <laughs> Correct. Okay. Exactly. So someone comes in smiling and says, shows all the interest. Interesting enough, 
we'll get a call potentially from someone saying, I'd like to inspect that property. Can I see you at three? Can we make an appointment? And I'll say, can you do it at three o'clock? We said, sure. And we'll say, well, where are you coming from? I'm coming from Chatswood to Hurstville. Um, that's the busiest time of the day. Are you sure you can get there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're sitting there at about 20 past three and no one turns up. You call them and say, oh, we only left Chatswood at three o'clock. We say, turn around and go back. Yeah, right. We're not waiting for you. Go home. You're not, for you, if you're not on time, you're not interested. So, oh, no, 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 no. You know, we talk about it. So when they come and do business with us, it, it is on our terms, not their terms. So we put some discipline around it and we've earned respect out of that. So we say, be on time or otherwise we're there for 15 minutes, otherwise we go. We've got better things to do than to <laughs> wait for you for one hour. And what? And it's, it, it's that sort of, Mike, it's that sort of clear, black and white, ethical type behaviour, which, um, which is that if you're going to work with Chinese, yep. you have to have that and, regard. And uh, what, what's happened with uh, the, the legislation changes to, to the market? Oh, listen, it's just well, the Chinese market, particularly the residential right. market, has fallen off a cliff. So also, too, the, the xenophobia I spoke about was pretty well publicised in mainland China. When we bought in the regulations, particularly the extra taxes and um, and you know the amount we could sell off the plan to foreign investors and that sort of thing, that was interpreted as we right. don't want the Chinese investment. Okay? So... All that press we had last year, 18 months ago, um, was from media, which is huge in China, um, and, you know, WeChat and that type of thing, that in Australia, they're, they're not, not terribly happy about having um, Chinese investment. So that stopped. Um, there's plenty of off-the-plan sales, and they're settling now, and there's a few problems with um, with that because... Often the people who came over here to buy came over as a tour and there was the agents, the property developer and the financier all locked in. Yeah. Well, that finance has disappeared. So there is some difficulty getting settlements at the moment. So, Yeah, it'll be interesting to, to see if, if that gets relaxed. But I, I think you're, you're right is that um, Australians in general didn't want the Chinese investing in property because we had this notion that they were you know, fairly disproportionately responsible for driving up house prices where I think we can sort of now see uh, post-APRA changes that the story is a little bit different. Yeah, but Mike, they did. They drove prices up in Chatswood. They drove it up at Epping. They drove the prices up at Hurstville um, and to a certain extent in South Sydney because what the Chinese do, no different to any immigrant, they clustered yes. where there were uh, people who could speak Mandarin or Cantonese. Um, you know, if you go down to the Haymarket these days, which is primarily Cantonese and some Korean, that has... A, an economy all of its own yeah. and a property price all of its own because of the cluster. But just remember that Marrickville was Greek, uh, Leichhardt was Italian, Ligon Street in Melbourne, much the same, and those ethnic groups drove it up. You go out to Cabramatta in Sydney now, the uh, main street down there is the prices they achieve is the same price as they do in Chatswood. It's because of the clustering effect by those those groups of people. If you go to Bankstown, you've got a lot of uh, Middle Eastern families out there. So you've got this clustering that takes yep. place, which, which is so you can't really draw, um, you can't draw a line over over Sydney and say, well, this is this is what's taking place. It's got to be looked at individually. Yeah, yeah, interesting to to hear that those those pockets are where you're seeing the the, the majority of the investment, like Chatswood and, and places like that. Um, I'm interested in your role as the president of the Real Estate Institute of Australia. What what motivated you to take on the role, and 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 what are your sort of duties and responsibilities in that position, Malcolm? <laughs> Um, look, there's two, I suppose, for your listeners. You've got the, the Real Estate Institute of Australia primarily is the institute for the state institutes. Mm-hmm. So the state institutes really run, um, really oversee regulation, um, uh, training to a certain extent, while there's other training providers, the forms, and really a lot of the tools that you need when you, as an agent, um, 
out there practicing. Uh, there's strong local lobbyists, state lobbyists in each of those areas where REIA is a federal lobbyist and a research organisation. So my role is as the spokesperson for real estate. Now, I'm not talking about real estate agents. I'm talking about real estate in Australia. And that's backed up by a pretty comprehensive um, research group. So when I can't go out to the press and um, really lobby on behalf of real estate agents. We're a very hard group of people to um, to credibly represent. Um, and that's we, we're aware of that. But what we do, we manage practically all the, the small investors' properties. We're, the, we're at the front line with the first home buyer, the, the upsizer, the downsizer. So we're really at the coalface of real estate. And so we, in that um, debate, the federal debate around property, we're the ones who talk with both sides of government and, and through their parliamentary committees and give them a very clear picture of what's taking place. At the moment, I spoke to our, uh, we, we spoke to our, um, my CEO spoke to our Treasury the other day and he said he took credit for cooling, so systematically cooling um, the residential market. And uh, our CEO said, not only have you cooled it, you basically cut mm. the guts out of it. And he said, no, no, he said, that's not what we see. And we said, well, your stats are two months old, three months old, and auction clearances are not now a good barometer of the market. The bottom line is, in some parts of Melbourne, um, Sydney, and Brisbane, you're down 20%. And this is because we're the ones who are at the coalface where the deals mm. are being struck. And he saw it, and we said, if next year you're going to have to be looking at what sort of stimulus you're going to put in place to kick things along again. And we said the same thing to, uh, I spoke to Bill Shorten, and he said to me, welcome, Malcolm, you're a foreigner to this side of um, government. <laughs> and, and he said, so what, what are you going to do, hammer us about negative gearing? We said, no. Um, if you, you uh, want, we counselled, you can't tax your way to affordability. If that's the goal, you can't do it. If it's a grab for tax, tell the, tell the constituents out there that you can, you're going to tax it because you, you want some of that wealth. But you need, we're saying to him that you need to have a, uh, a minister that with a laser focus on real estate, property, housing. Because you've got a real the, the affordability issue is only a Sydney and Melbourne problem. Yep. And you, okay, and sorry, I'll let you finish, Michael. So that's the sort of so that like that's the sort of thing, the lobby that brings some relativity to the property debate federally. Because when you go to Canberra, it's like going into a great big circus tent, okay, and um, you've got all the performers and you've got the central stage being you know, the House of Reps or and everyone dancing around them. It, it it really is an inclusive environment and sometimes I'm of the opinion they're not well. I like the idea of a farmer bursting into the circus tent of, of Canberra uh, telling some, some honest home truths. Um, I know that our listeners will be really interested. I mean, um, you're, you've obviously had conversations with uh, Mr Shorten. Obviously, negative gearing is, is a big issue coming up to the election. You've expressed some, some grave concerns about it. What, what do you see the impact of, of the removal Removal of, of negative gearing being on the property market and the economy as a whole as it, as it stands at the moment? Well, I think we're already seeing it, Mike, because there's, when you look at the polls, the Labor Party will be elected sometime between before May next year. And so a lot of investors are factoring in that negative gearing and capital gains tax will change. When I've spoken to, when we've spoken to, uh, the, uh, the shadow treasury, um, treasurer and his assistants and Mr. Shorten, they're going to the next election with these, these, um, tax platforms. That's what they're telling us. Whether they will them in the first term or whether it's in the second, second term, because they're more likely to get two terms, um, we're not sure. But they're aware. Our comment to, um, to the treasurer, the deputy, sorry, the shadow treasurer, was, why don't you go and have a conversation with Mr. Keith? Oh, yes. 
you know, one of our, and where he can tell you when he took away negative gearing, the impact it had on um, rental properties. And that's considered by both sides of government as a bit of a bit of a threat by the real estate agents. But real estate investment sales or transactions, it's a bit like a battleship. You know, it's slow to get moving, then it gets up to full speed, and then to slow down takes some time. So using that analogy, you've got a lot of those properties that have been committed to 18 months or two years ago settling now, coming on the market, and what we're seeing is vacancy rates in Melbourne, Sydney, are quite high, above 2%, 2.5%, and this sort of thing. So the rents really haven't risen above CPI much for yeah. about... Um, seven or eight years, six years. So we've, you've never seen a lobby group yell louder than tenants in a rising And we haven't seen market. that for, for a long time, right? And I think that some of the debate gets a little bit lost with housing affordability just on, with the focus on home, uh, first homeowners, whereas, whereas rental affordability is, has got to be part of the debate as well, right? Correct. And you've, they've... That's why we, our lobby is there should be a minister for real estate or for property that has a laser focus on all those matters because we know when there's improved infrastructure in some of the regional cities, um, you get people moving out and uh, telecommuting or they'll travel by train or come in by car if required. Also, too, the inner city affordability problem is called the Manhattan Effect. And it's a worldwide phenomena. Sydney is the sixth biggest um, biggest uh, business city in the world. Melbourne's the eighth. So, what the reason they call this is not the Real Estate Institute's connotation. This is something that came out of a conference I was at in Hanoi, um, where they were talking about London. They said London attracts world businesses. The world, those these big international businesses attracts the brightest and smartest who get paid the most amount of money, a lot of money. So where do they want to live? They want to live in close, close, close proximity to the, where they work. Guess what happens? They drive the rents and drive the prices up. And so what we need to do is, with what we're seeing now, for example, is a centralisation of business, not a decentralisation of business. A good example is the Commonwealth Bank have just moved, what, 40,000, 40,000 um, square metres of business into yep. the technology park at Redfern. So what's that, what's that going to do for prices and rents yeah. around the do inner you, city? Do you think that the, the housing affordability issue is really sort of altered by the concentration of people in our cities like Sydney and Melbourne? And do you think that we need to move to more of a, of a model where, say, in the United States, they have these massive regional centres or at least, at least a greater number of cities with similar levels of population? I agree wholeheartedly with that. If if you've been to Adelaide or you've been down or you've been to Perth, but Adelaide particularly is a beautiful city and a, a great place to live, but the economy struggles because they have lost um, you know the manufacturing down there, the car industries and these sorts of things. But you've got one of the best universities in Australia down there, and um, we should have parts of the big businesses down there. There should be some fact technology businesses down there and that type of thing. Let there be no doubt that people will move if there's jobs. If you could move to regional New South Wales um, or Victoria, Ballarat and Bendigo are outperforming at the moment because they've got an improved rail system and, and um, improved, um, improved roads. Geelong's doing well. Even with us, we've got places like Port Macquarie is doing extremely well because you've got James Sturt University expanding, expanding uh, 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 aged care up there because there's an ageing population. But most importantly, what they did, two things. One, the expressway is being developed in a very short time. You'll go from Port yep. Macquarie to Sydney without a traffic light. And also, the airport's been expanded, so you've got three airlines that fly in. So the moment three airlines fly in, you get competition, and you can fly from Port Macquarie, I think, up to Brisbane. And Tamworth's the same. 
you've got Newcastle now with uh, shortly with Air New Zealand flying in. So what you're doing, because so much of our, our professions now can telecommute or can work remotely, many, peop- many of those people will move. I think the biggest, the best example is the Byron Shire. Forget about so much Byron Bay, but why is that so popular? I'd be a beautiful place to live. The, you know, if you want to swim with sharks. The tie-dyed but, t-shirts, they've obviously got to be a pool as well. Of course. <laughs> but, but you can, you can, you've got a Ballon, a Ballon Airport, which has flights all over, to all over the, the state and to all over, the, I think, down to Melbourne. Secondly, you go to Coolangatta, which is less than an hour away, you can fly internationally. And that's the thing. That's why where our feds should concentrate on really encouraging business to go into regions and some of our other cities. And I think I think that you're right that those those transport hubs and the, and the connectedness, uh, you know, coupled with the decentralisation of the workforce, these are all things that can influence um, you know housing affordability uh, as we sort of deconcentrate those population masses. But I, I'm interested also in in the idea. Seems like there's a there's an idea that um, if we're whacking investors and we take one out of the market, we get immediately uh, that person replaced by a first homeowner. Do you do you think that that's that's the case? That that sort of seems to be the the media rhetoric at the moment. Um, what they're doing is they're saying, uh, look at the statistics that um, the first home buyers' numbers have improved, but they have what they have improved against the current um, volume because the investors have disappeared and the upsizes, downsizes have pulled back. But and the first home buyers are the darling of the market at the moment, particularly the lenders. Yeah, and so they're percentages improved but against uh, a lower base so but the what we need to be able to do as i said the first and also too and this is where i got an awful lot of trouble a little while ago i was on the 7:30 report and i stood up and looked down the camera and said um when a question was asked me what does uh, what does uh, somebody wants to who's, you know who wants to come and live in the inner city to do because it's so unaffordable and I said well you need a good job or otherwise you may need two of you with two good jobs and social media went ballistic and said you silly old bloody um, <laughs> uh, baby boomer what would you know you can imagine all the, yep. the vitriol that came out but what we've got is this because of our bad transport this concentration in, in, in one area but also too I think we and I'm a baby boomer. We've endowed our kids to this lifestyle and this expectation, where to home ownership is is uh, it's it's a right, but it's a right that has to be earned. And so it's where you start and where you finish is two different things. I commenced my um, life, married life, in a converted dairy at the back of Castle Ray. I now live around the water at. Um, at Rushcutters Bay, but there's been about a, there's been a half a dozen steps, seven steps in between. Yeah, and this is this is the important thing to your listeners and to others out there. You start. You've got to see real estate as a, as a stepping stone, as an opportunity. Um, and you sometimes, if you get onto the home ownership ladder, you have to forego. And if you look at where if you look at this inner city, particularly at Surrey Hills, what do people forego when they come to live in here? They forego cars. Cars are not seen as a status symbol in, 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 in um, Surrey Hills. People ride bikes and scooters and they go and rent a BMW in a weekend with a share car. Yep. They walk to work and these ones, so they forego that to live in a small space to be able to enjoy the lifestyle they've got, so you've, it's it's all about compromise. I'm I'm interested in your ideas uh, about tackling housing affordability. For example, you've talked about um, removing stamp duty in favour of of land taxes. Was that uh, intended to to act as more of a supply side stimulant to to increase the the I guess the stock of houses to to bring prices a little bit more under control? Um, 
the reason that uh, the argument why not to take stamp duty off is suggest that we just go straight on the purchase price. Mm-hmm. But any tax, and this is fundamental economics, any tax that hinders turnover is a bad tax. So stamp duty is something which is a really a major consideration when you're buying real estate. So that is a barrier to entry um, into the property market. So if that was taken away, that then gives more opportunity to be able to buy. But many say, oh, that'll just drive the prices up. But that's not Economics 101. It's all about supply. So what happens then is that base land tax, and I'm including, you know, apartments and um, and the whole range of things that you would pay, basically a, a tax to the government to live in where you you know, where you are, where you're occupied. And that doesn't resonate well, but it does. If you if in commercial real estate, you're paying land tax anyway, mm-hmm. and it's, that influences um, your decision with your outgoings and that sort of thing. What it's done is basically driven rents down because land tax has gone up. But so really you're paying a rent, a tax to occupy, your, uh, where you're going to live. It's a fairer tax. Okay, so that means you're living on the harbour front, you're paying a lot more tax than you are if you live in a one-bedroom flat at the back of Redfern. Yep. But you still pay proportionally that tax, but you take away those other tax. Or the other thing, <clears throat> you do what they do in New Zealand, is increase GST. Right. And that, and that's, that's that's the both sides of politics absolutely frightened to raise yeah. that, but New, and that's what happens in New Zealand. New Zealand's fifteen percent, no no property taxes, okay, and um, so no barriers, okay. The prices go up and down with the market demand. There, there's there's an idea that um, obviously cooling the the markets were were an important thing uh, at the peak of the market, you know, some 12, 12 or so months ago. Do do you think that the the APRA changes were were effective in what they were doing, and do you think it's more like an APRA job to cool the market than than sort of overreaching national policies like negative gearing or even um, adjusting uh, things like um, the GST? Um, well, they won't go near GST because you become unelectable mm. in far as their, their, concern, the, um, their concern is, or otherwise, even broadening the GST to cover all, um, all, all items, you know, even just picking up, you know, the cooked food and that, or the fresh food and that type of thing. But the only lever that um, the government had was APRA. But what I, we're of the opinion that what the government weren't were blindsided to a certain extent about what's come out of the Royal Commission with the banks. And there is really the banks have got to be held accountable because when you look at their procedures for uh, qualification and um, and again with some of their off-the-plan sales and the way they use their agents, brokers, all that um, deserves a very close look and being tightened up. But on, so that also impacted on the banks themselves because they focused on cleaning up their um, their businesses. And then with the American economy doing so well, their bond rates going up. So a lot of the money that floats around the world that the banks source then to lend back to their investors has tightened up. It's gone yeah. up. So what you've got is a credit squeeze, you've got the upper regulation, and you've got the banks in some cases, oh, they won't say, but I just wonder whether some of the banks are giving the, um, the government the bird. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, but I'm turning around and saying, well, you've hammered us. Where, where are the scapegoats? But maybe you have a bit to answer to also. Well, I mean, if you if you think about the banks sort of holding the country hostage with tightening up lending, then we're going to see our home values decrease, and that's I guess if if you are pro liberal government and Labor are bringing this negative gearing policy to the election, the more house house prices can drop, the better the chances for the liberal government, right? Correct, but it's interesting because. We couldn't increase interest rates because of our um, 
because of our wages growth. We don't have wages growth. That's the biggest fundamental here is wages growth to a certain extent. It's because businesses being doing it a bit tough. Retail, as we know, is really, really um, very tough business to be in. And even the food game is tough. So what we're seeing is a whole cultural change with the way where um, we do business these days. You know, more people are, are part-time, got part-time employment, but that cost of living hasn't gone up that much. But still, there's not as much... People aren't pro rata, not earning as much money. Um, particularly if you're, uh, you know, in the government, you're getting pretty well paid these days. So they, can't, so they can't increase interest rates. So APRA has been doing that job. But I'm of the opinion next year, if we continue, the next move in interest rates right. will be down, which we don't, we don't need interest rates to go any lower. I think it's reasonable. What we need is wages growth. And where the money should go into is what, what Turnbull was on about was lowering company tax stimulate business some more, you stimulate business, they don't take the profits out, they tend to grow, reinvest back into their business and grow their yeah, businesses. Yeah, become employers, of course, or further employers. Correct, and that's further, but that's, again, um, fundamental economics. So you've got this, you've got this uh, a bit of a class um, uh, argument going on that big business does well, and the, the people that are employed aren't doing as well, but government, which makes a big chunk of our employment, are doing quite well. They're, they're in debt and doing quite well. But it's where it's the people who are um, working in the food or, um, or in the entertainment industry or some of this or in the shops and that type of thing. That's the area that's really been knocked around because of um, online and you know, our, um, uh, the way we live our lives these days. Which if we think about, say, the, the property industry, which is a, it's a pretty big I- employer, we're obviously seeing impacts of the softening in house prices, i.e. transaction volumes are, are lower. They tend to correlate with a, an appreciating market. What, what are you sort of seeing uh, on the ground? I know that real estate jobs being advertised is dropping. Is that just confined to the real estate industry or do you think that this that, that house prices, uh, I, I guess, are, are tightly correlated with the all, all other employment sectors? Uh, there's again a couple of questions there. Oh, just for that, um, yeah, but far as our industry is concerned, we're just talking about the real estate agency and like the service industry. Expect to see twenty percent less right. of us, not less than that. Okay, it's already happening. When there's a, when there's also too, that's coupled with you're you're, you're a quantity surveyor, you're a university degree to get into your profession. To get a job in um, Sydney, Melbourne or Brisbane, you, you need about three or four days of training and away you go with a salesperson certificate. That's changed in New South Wales. So what we've got is easy in, easy out. If you're not successful at something, go and have a yeah. go at real estate. Um, and you know, uh, if you're not invested in your career, a three-year uni course or something like that, well, easy in, easy out. Go and do something else. So the industry itself is going to, during this time, both in Sydney and um, in Melbourne and Brisbane, Brisbane and, um, and Melbourne to a lesser extent, is going through a seismic change. In New South Wales now, you need to have a certificate level, which is a Cert 3, Certificate 3, um, education standard to hold a salesman certificate. And you can only hold that salesperson certificate for a period of two years. If you don't progress to a license, which is a certificate for, you're out of the industry. So you can't sort of lob in, lob out. So what we're going to see is real estate, a bit like valuation was, and and a lot of the other industries become careers. Lo and behold, become a a licensed real estate agent, you're going to have the same same qualification as an electrician or a plumber. How surprising is that? (laughs) You know, yet here I am as a value. I went through TAFE or tech those days of a night to become a valuer. Now, as as you're well aware, most of your listeners are, it's a university degree. I see um, real estate agency, it's at diploma level now, in time, 
if, moving into that degree area, which is a higher level of education, to get a job in commercial real estate, you you need tertiary education. It's not a prerequisite, but my office here is full of young men and women with tertiary education, and they are they're a lot more patient with their career. With real estate agency, it's a little bit um, get in, make the most, and get out. So we're going to see a clean out. But the other states of Australia have got much higher standards than the East Coast. So, but then the knock-on effect now, when we talk about the broader real estate um, market, I was talking to one of our builders the other day, a developer, and he said for the first time, he said in the last couple of months, I've got project managers knocking yeah, my door wow. for work. He said, I couldn't get them six years ago. Yeah, so so the gold rush Five is over. Ago, and it, It's over, well and truly over. And when developers will pack up and they will, um, won't do as much, you know, they come in and out of the market, they'll scale back. And a lot of those uh, construction jobs and uh, professional jobs in property uh, will become redundant. The construction industry, the property industry, is probably that transitioned us really out of the GS, out of the uh, the the mining downturn, the uh, the crunch, no, the mining downturn, and then the financial yes. crisis yep. that we had seven or eight years ago. That transition transitioned out of us, out of that. I remember John Howard throwing all sorts of incentives in, um, uh, you know, about twelve years ago, fourteen years ago, to kick it, get things going. The same things we'll end up doing the same thing again if we overcook the uh, the regulation. You know, with with the tightening of um, of lending policy, it's going to. So, what do you? What is your again. crystal ball for for the next sort of three to five years for the for the property market, especially in Sydney and and the economy overall, Malcolm? Um, we, Australia is um, is a big place. Uh, let's talk about the East Coast, which is where we've seen the most amount of growth. Again, if we go back to the sort of early eighties and the nineties. We have flat line growth. So you're going to see prices drop and you're going to end up with really flat line growth in property prices for four or five years. So that'll, that's what takes place. So we've, we'll see the drop. That'll stabilize. The current market, particularly on the East Coast, I, you've got, if, if you, and this is a big graphic, I suppose, for your listeners, but envisage that the, um, the property market is dying. So you've got the crows sitting on the fence looking to pick the carcass at the moment, okay? So a lot of those, lot of those buyers are sitting on the fence saying, I'm going to pick the bottom of the market. Well, the yep. bottom of the market's here now. They will come into the market in 2019. And what you will do is, and they'll be making low-ball offers, which is that they're right, okay? They're trying to test that market. So what you'll see is turnover starting to pick up again, but at lower volumes and at lower prices. So with your listeners, you haven't really lost money unless you've, um, you've sold, okay? unless you've, uh, you're selling now and you've bought something else. If you're buying and selling the same markets, all the same numbers. So any, I, I know very few people that sell high by low. Okay, you need to be smart. When it gets down to... Um, a house, it's your home, it's a place where you put your kids, you put your wife, you live, you know, a husband and wife are in there with their family units. This is about the uh, most important part of their life. So the money part of it should not be central yep. to that decision. And, and I guess if, you know, wage growth is, is, is not going anywhere in a hurry, but interest rates probably the same. So even if you find yourself in negative equity, you don't materialize the loss until you sell, nope. right? So nope. as long as you're, you've got a long-term view, you should hopefully be able to hold on to the property and ride that out. Well, you do. I've, um, I, I can talk from experience. I remember building some houses. We used to do quite a bit of property development at one stage and I realized I wasn't very good at it. And after making losses, when they bought home, um, homeowners warranty in, I thought, whoops. I'm a part, we're part-time developers, full-time real estate agents. Guess what? We're yeah. full-time real estate agents. Get out of it because it's a professional industry. But we, we put them, right. put those properties away. Prices drop, we put tenants in and put them away. 
And then we really didn't sell them for about five years later until we got some growth. So from your listener's point of view, you're not going to get any quick recovery. It's going to take some time. And the recovery will come from economic recovery and, uh, so and wages growth. you mentioned that people obviously got some opportunities to, to grab some, some property at the, the bottom of the market. And if they've got a long-term view, there could be some, some good good chance of, of growth uh, over a reasonable time horizon. Where, where do you see the best opportunities for property investors in the next couple of years? I think um, in some of the areas that are you know, the Docklands type, um, the South Sydney areas, or otherwise around your regional cities, the Geelongs, the Ballarats, excuse me, um, the Parramatta's, those areas. But from your listener's point of view, Anywhere where there's good infrastructure, that northwest rail link running out um, out to uh, uh, the yep. you know the northwest part of Sydney, anywhere along there is good. Leppington and these areas, wherever there's new infrastructure, where the airport's going in, n- new infrastructure is what's going to drive capital growth because we're not going to be able to build expressways and um, motorways quick enough to satisf- satisfy them, but. Parramatta, um, is, it's a big centre. So anywhere in those areas, you're going to have satellites, Newcastle, Wollongong, more Newcastle, Newcastle again is now really becoming a developed city. Yeah. So those sorts of areas. Um, Brisbane um, has got a lot going for it. It's a lower cost base or entry level than, than Sydney. Great place to live. And they just need that economy will start to pick up. It's just um, I just don't think the government are doing a good job up there at the moment about stimulating the economy. But once the economy picks up, you'll see the flight from the southern states to to, to, to Brisbane. Yeah, there's a bit of infrastructure planned there, some uh, some new developments uh, along the water there, and of course the the price differential between Sydney and Brisbane is is looking quite attractive as well. Malcolm, if people are interested in in, in reading some of the the uh, the stuff that you put out to the the media or getting in touch with you, what, what's the best way to do that? Uh, look, I think you go to the Real Estate Institute of Australia's website, and we have a lot of our um, research we put up. And a lot of we we do put out a research document every three months with the Bank of Adelaide about the affordability report, and we put we overlay the research that we pull from every, everywhere, and then put the practical side on it, saying we and we talk about regions, uh, what's happening in regions, and um, why we think there might be good growth opportunities. But with with your listeners out there. Wherever they put new infrastructure, um, new airport, expand an airport to do that sort of thing, you know that's going to attract people. So it's not rocket science. It's, sim- it's um, really simple uh, real estate. Well, logic. I wanted to finish with if there's one piece of advice you can give investors, what would that be? And is is that the main one, chasing that uh, the, the infrastructure and, and those uh, those developments that link, I guess, cities with, with, with good transport? I think you should adopt what commercial investors do. Commercial investors are long-term investors. They're not short, short plays. They're long plays. So from your listener's point of view, real estate's a long play and you get very lucky by owning real estate for a long time. I think, I think that's fantastic advice, uh, Malcolm. Thank you very much for the time today. It's been a real pleasure. It's a pleasure, Mike. 